and welcome to the latest Dairy Dialogue, the podcast about the dairy industry, and this is number 154. It comes hot on the heels of the last one, at least in terms of recording, just a couple of days apart thanks to a trip to Anuga. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it does feel a bit odd recording this early so it can be ready to go to air on October the 13th. Because of Anuga and the travelling, I don't really have hours and hours to spend editing. And because of that, not a lot has happened to talk about. But that's okay, because we have three interviews and less of me. Always a good thing. So there's no update on the global dairy markets this week, and there's also no recap of the week's news, because this is being put together after just one day of news. Having said that, there's been a bit more news than there had been recently, so that's hopefully the shape of things to come. I also hope that Anuga is full of new products and interesting stories to tell, and that I can take off my mask when I'm talking. Although having said that, I suspect I'll be doing most of the link parts outdoors. Still, the forecast for Germany is good, so I'm looking forward to not being wet. So on this week's podcast, we have conversations with Wopke Boerkema, Senior Manager R&D at Perkin Elmer, and then an interview with two people, Miguel Freitas, PhD, Vice President of Scientific Affairs, and Christy Lay, Registered Dietitian, Nutritionist, and Senior Manager of Scientific Affairs, and they are both at Danone, North America. And we also chatted with Donald Moore. Executive Director of Global Dairy Platform, about the Pathways to Dairy Net Zero initiative. So let's get right into the interviews. Perkin Elmer has launched the IndyScope Raw Milk Analysis Solution, which is designed to help milk collection points perform fast and accurate testing to determine fair market value and help ensure a safe raw milk supply chain for consumers. To tell us about it is Wapka Boakama, Senior Manager R&D at Perkin Elmer. Before we actually get to what the IndyScope is I wonder if you could tell me what it was designed to address. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Actually, it's if you look at the dairy value chain, there's a critical moment in there where you actually uh, change ownership of the milk, if you will. And at that change, actually, there's an important uh, step of uh, of actually uh, uh, testing what uh, what the quality of the milk is. If a farmer delivers milk, of course, he also is interested in uh, receiving money. But then the uh, processor or uh, the one who actually buys the milk uh, also wants to determine what is actually the quality of that milk. So it's, it's actually designed for that uh, critical moment. Yeah, and it's uh, actually a dedicated solution that is uh, for raw milk, uh, for uh, cow milk, but also buffalo milk. So that whole range uh, can be analyzed. And how long has it been in development? It's been uh, pretty quick, actually. Uh, We have used some uh, existing technology. We already had some FTAR infrared uh, analyzers. And we looked at some various uh, different uh, technology as well. But it turned out that this one was uh, with the most uh, expectation, the best expectation. Uh, But then in only six months, we were able to to come from an idea to, to really a product. And in doing that, uh, you cannot do it uh, with only a small group. Uh, we had in total about four different teams uh, working uh, parallel uh, on this uh, product, located in different areas. I mean, the Netherlands, we were the leading team, but we had also people from Sweden, from the UK, actually, and also from India. 
and the final production of the unit is uh, is in India. And so, what does it do, and how does it work? Well, as mentioned, it's a, it's a dedicated uh, raw milk analyzer, and it actually does the chemical composition of milk. So it can determine uh, fat, protein, solids, non-fat, and those constituents are used actually uh, for the payment. So the more fat in there, uh, then uh, the farmer can get more money for it. But at the same time, it also is detecting uh, different adulterants. We have about five targeted adulterants, and it also can screen for any abnormalities uh, in the milk. So that's what it does. So that will be useful in many different places, I guess. Yeah, the example was actually for India. Um, and, and also the name already indicates it's a, it as an Indie scope. But in India, you have uh, quite a lot of what they call collection stations, milk collection stations. It's actually designed uh, for that environment. So the instrument can survive pretty rough uh, conditions with temperature 5 to, to almost 40 degrees uh, circumstances. Not only in India, but you find uh, similar situations also in in Africa, uh, but also South America. And without giving away any trade secrets, how does it actually work for the person that's doing the testing? The farmers bring in their milk, uh, so they come with a container of milk, sometimes even connected to their mopeds, so they bring it in. uh, And then imagine containers of maybe 10 liters, 15 liters max. Bring the milk, at that point uh, they... um, Put it on a balance to see how much weight is there. And then uh, a sample is taken actually from that container into a small vial, about 30 ml vial. Uh, and that is placed under the pipette of the instrument and the test is actually uh, done. The actually principle is an FTIR technology. So it's a Fourier transform uh, infrared uh, technology. So every time an analyze is done, it's uh, taking uh, an infrared spectrum and it has some uh, algorithms in the unit, so then it, the uh, the results are actually calculated from that. How does it compare to previous instruments for this purpose? Well, we had a variety of instruments actually uh, normally at the collection station. Also some chemical analyzers, but they were only doing like a fat and total t- solids uh, determination. Sometimes even they had uh, chemical uh, methods present uh, where they took about 10 minutes to 15 minutes to only do fat. For adulterants, they had to do various, well, strip tests, uh, these these indicators if something is wrong with the milk. So there was a lot of variety of tests uh, there present. And this unit can actually do it all in one shot. So it can determine all these uh, components uh, plus the adulterant screening in one go. And what are the other benefits for the users of this new solution? First of all, in the design, uh, we built something in that they can maintain it also by, uh, by local technicians. So it's an easy enough instrument uh, to replace parts. Uh, that was one of the things that we tried to put in the, in the project. Um, also, uh, of course, when analyzing milk, uh, you need to filter the milk before it actually goes into the analyzer. There is in the unit an inspection window where the user can actually see if the filter needs to be cleaned or replacement. And it's a single hand action to actually replace a filter for this type of instrument. The power supply, we selected uh, 12 volt DC. Of course, we use uh, a kind of 220 12 volt uh, transformer which comes with the instrument, uh, but it can also be powered from a, a car battery if needed. So those kind of benefits are there. Also, the way it was built uh, to survive uh, rough uh, conditions. Uh, the optics for that matter is uh, hermetically sealed. 
just to make sure that no dust or humidity or anything can actually uh, enter the unit to keep it in a good shape for a long time. How easy is it for the operator to use and how quickly can you see the results and do they need interpretation? Well, the results are actually pretty quick. It's uh, within 30 seconds you have all the, the measurements done. So all the fat, protein, solids, non-fat and the adulterants are done in that uh, 30 seconds. And the results actually show up on the screen. Uh, so the interpretation is uh, pretty straightforward. The instrument is supplied with the algorithms already on it. So they can locally uh, tune these algorithms uh, for their needs. And then it actually shows up already on the display. So they can immediately see the result. And if there are adulterants present, uh, the instrument will actually give an alert for that. It says, hey, this is one that uh, has an adulteration. It will, if it's one of the targeted uh, groups, then it will actually show that. It will show the name of the adulterant. But if it's an unknown, uh, then it will actually say that there are some abnormalities uh, in the milk. So that is all present there. So it is uh, pretty straightforward. They can actually get the results uh, straight into a computer by a USB port, or they can actually uh, download it on a on a memory stick. It needs electricity, but it doesn't doesn't need any sort of internet connection or anything. It is a self-sufficient instrument, so everything is there. You can literally write the, the, the results on a piece of paper, if you will. Most situations that we have seen so far have uh, do have internet connections, or they have a computer sitting next to the instrument for data collection. And they combine that uh, together with the balance. Uh, so they have both results of the balance and the instrument, uh, and then formulate actually the payment uh, directly on the spot to the farm. And obviously it's been through testing in the field. What's the reaction been like to those who have tried it out? They were pretty uh, positive. On the user interface, it has a full color touchscreen, uh, which is uh, with clear symbols of, of what it's actually doing. Uh, also, the button, uh, single action buttons uh, for starting an analyze uh, or uh, doing a clean. And everything can be actually read from this unit. Uh, it also tells you after a number of samples analyzed, and this is in the thousands of hundred thousands of samples, that it's ready for maintenance. So it will alert uh, the user as well uh, that it's time to, uh, to do some maintenance on the unit. So it's a pretty self-sufficient uh, kind of uh, instrument. And how does it fit in with the Perkin Elmer Virtual Reality Demo Center of Excellence for Food Testing? Actually, this was one of the first units that was made present in, uh, in that virtual reality uh, room. They built a complete uh, virtual uh, milk collection center in there, complete with the noise which is normally there, the background noises, uh, but also the balance and the scale and the lineup of uh, people. And one can actually go in there and literally uh, run the instruments but also uh, pulling parts that needs maintenance. Uh, it even shows in there uh, on the display the, the different uh, examples of adulterants uh, like water or uh, maltodextrin, uh, sucrose, uh, and uh, ammonium sulfate is one of the uh, targeted adulterants as well. So we can actually see that there happening. And how does it fit in with the existing range of solutions that you have for the sector? Well, this is a dedicated raw milk analyzer, uh, which is... Uh, one of the additions on the, actually the products lines that we have. So we have uh, liquid dairy analyzers, but also solitary analyzers. And this is this, actually the smallest one. Another one in that line is uh, electroscope, uh, what we call electroscope FTA, which is typically a, a dairy product analyzer. Uh, 
so that can do cream, uh, whey, and other products uh, from their liquid dairy. Uh, and next to that, uh, some uh, solid uh, dairy like a DA750, which can do powders, uh, cheese, and butter. Uh, so this one is actually in the beginning of the value chain. So it's at the start where it actually the payment uh, takes place, literally takes place. What's next for this? Do you tweak it as you go as people start to use it and have comments and suggestions? It depends a bit on the area. I mean, language is one thing uh, that we had some requests for. Uh, can we do it in Spanish? Can we do it in uh, Chinese even? Uh, and the instrument has the potential for that. It depends on uh, on how many they will actually do. And uh, then, then sure, we can, we can transform also the language uh, of these units. So that was one of the requests we have seen. An extended range of adulterants uh, is also what, uh, what they asked was, uh, but then it's getting into more complex uh, algorithms. Uh, this is actually a classification of adulterants, uh, so it's not uh, a measurement uh, that it actually tells you how much is in there. It just tells you if it's present or not. Was it available globally? Uh, it is already uh, sold in India and it's also globally available now. India is a bit further. Uh, we have sold uh, already quite a few instruments over there. And then globally, it's just starting, I would say. So it's a demo phase and where they uh, actually find uh, also some some new uh, areas uh, that we didn't expect. Uh, we have some interest from, uh, from even from, from large farmers uh, or even small processes where they use it for standardization. So that, that are new uh, segments that we are also looking at at this point. Next, it's to Danone to learn more about probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotics, and the microbiome. Because a new study shows a lot of people kind of know a little about them, but that there are also a lot of myths surrounding the subject. So, to clear it all up for us are Miguel Freitas, PhD, Vice President of Scientific Affairs, and Christy Lay, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and senior manager of scientific affairs, and they're both from Danone, North America. All right, so I guess to start, I wonder if you could tell me what the latest KRC research study was designed to discover? We launched the National Consumer Survey in partnership with um, KRC. It's a public opinion research consultancy firm. The goal was to validate the growing interests around gut health and the microbiome. As you know, that's really a passion of myself. And what this research showed is that we need uh, much greater clarity uh, around the gut microbiome and specifically around biotics conversations in general. So this really provides us an opportunity especially here at the NON, because we're so focused, committed to probiotics, to offer uh, myth-busting facts to help the public make the right choices for their biotics. So overall, our goal uh, is to bring clarity to the conversation around the microbiome and correct some misperceptions about all of these probiotics, prebiotics, and postbiotics that are around the market today. Consumers are looking for healthier products right now, but what does the study and what do you gather is the level of knowledge on gut health right now? I've been in the U.S. since 2004, and um, it's really been amazing to witness the progress that has been made in this space. I always tell this story, but when I arrived in 2004, 
the American understanding and knowledge on the benefits of good bacteria was really limited. And this was really driven by the belief that the antibacteria and sterile environment was always better for health. So always sanitizing everything. And we were able, I believe, we're able with the launch of one of our biggest probiotic brands, Activia, in 2006, we're able to change a little bit the perception that American consumers had around good bacteria and probiotics in the United States. So my work with Danone helped mainstream probiotics by placing them on the shelves across the U.S. and talking about good bacteria and talking about gut health uh, directly to consumers. But while there's a greater awareness of probiotics, uh, obviously, uh, not a lot of Americans understand the larger biotics family, uh, which can all have an impact in gut health and uh, on the microbiome. And that includes the prebiotics, which are dietary fibers that nourish the good bacteria in your gut, but also postbiotics, which have been uh, recently uh, described as inanimate microorganisms or their components that provide a health benefit. So what our survey showed is that more than two-thirds of U.S. adults uh, recognize that probiotics have a positive impact on our overall health. However, the awareness of the other biotics uh, is much lower. Prebiotics is at 34%, postbiotics at 14%, much, much lower. So in fact, more than um, three quarters of uh, adults admit that they are unfamiliar or unsure of the impact of postbiotics, which is actually quickly emerging as a trending functional ingredient um, for many companies. The terms that people are confused about, or they may, do they actually know the terms, but they don't know any details about them? I mean, can you sort of define those terms for me? Yes, I think that that's a very good question. I'm going to let Christy answer this because she's biotics everything. She has the definitions uh, clearly in her in her mind, probably much better than I saw. I'll let you answer this, Christy. Great. Thanks, Miguel. So if we just think about probiotic, right, which we know a lot of U.S. adults have heard of, the most simple definition is for life. So pro plus biotic, these are good microorganisms that have been studied and shown to provide a health benefit. And probiotics have different health benefits depending on their strain. And so the most common benefits we see are around digestive health, the immune system, even around um, your gut microbiota, and we're seeing some even helping with mental well-being. And then Miguel, I think you already defined prebiotics in your last answer, but they're, they're really just dietary fibers that are food for the good bacteria in your gut. And they're also able to provide health benefits by altering either the composition or the function of the gut microbiota. And interestingly, most prebiotics are dietary fibers, but not all dietary fibers are prebiotics, which I think is where some of the confusion comes in with consumers. And prebiotics can be found in your diet. So artichokes, chicory root, green vegetables, onions, barley, wheat, these are all sources of inulin in our diets. 
And then postbiotics. So this one is, it's a new definition, actually. Um, The International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics just came out with a consensus statement earlier this year. Miguel also defined this one already, but it's a preparation of these inanimate microorganisms and their components that also have been shown to confer a health benefit. And because they aren't alive, they can have a longer shelf life, which I think we're going to see is going to be great for companies to start innovating around. And we're going to start seeing the trend increasing around these postbiotics. And then I think the, the last term is really around the microbiome. Specifically, the gut microbiome is what we were looking at with this survey. And the gut microbiome is made up of trillions of microbes and their genes, their byproducts that live in our digestive tract. Every microbiome is unique, just like our fingerprints, but there are some similarities between individuals within regions and countries and populations where you can see how there are parts of their microbiomes that are the same. And you can shift your microbiome a bit with diet. If you get sick and need to go on antibiotics, that can shift your microbiome a lot, but it's really resilient and it'll come back and really look about the same after it's had a chance to rebound. And in terms of all of the myths and the study, I wonder if you could cover some of the interesting results and stats from the study, because it was really interesting data. You know, we were really looking to see what the consumer interest was on gut health and the confusion with this survey. And and we know there's a lot of interest there. And what we were able to see that was from the survey, there were five major myths around the microbiome and probiotics. So the first myth is all fermented foods and beverages containing probiotics. And more than half of Americans believe that when they're consuming a fermented food or a beverage, like a kombucha or a pickle or even like a sourdough bread, that they're getting probiotic benefits. And so because these foods are fermented, they do contain bacteria, But through the process of cooking or pasteurization, we know that sometimes these microbes are killed. And because they are microbes that are creating fermented foods, they probably fall more into the cultures bucket than the probiotic bucket. So because the benefits of probiotics are strain specific, we know that these bacteria would need to be studied in order to show a benefit. The other myths include um, that all live and active cultures are probiotics. So we know that that's not true, but it is a belief held by almost half of consumers. Live and active cultures are microbes, but they're really used for uh, technological purposes, like creating fermented foods, like yogurt, and that when you have a yogurt that's probiotic, it's because a probiotic strain was added. And that probiotic strain was added to provide a health benefit, like supporting gut health or supporting the immune system. But the cultures used to make these products really can't be categorized as as probiotic. A couple more myths would be that products that have a higher number of colony forming units, so CFUs, are more effective as a probiotic. And in terms of probiotics, just like we know that the benefits are strain specific, we also know that we should be consuming the amounts of the probiotic that were studied in order to validate that strain as a probiotic. So it's not really a more is necessarily better approach for probiotics, but consumers really get hung up on these billions, 100 billion, 150 billion CFUs 
of probiotics and they think that they're getting a better benefit than say something that would have 20 or two or one. And that's something that, that we know just isn't true. And then the second to last myth was around, you should not take probiotics while using antibiotics. So far, we can't see that there's any reason to avoid probiotics if you are prescribed antibiotics. Consuming probiotics regularly does add good bacteria to your gut. And especially if you've been taking antibiotics, right, it's good to add those good bacteria back in there to help your microbiome come back to its normal state. However, because it is, you know, dealing with like a sickness, you wouldn't be taking antibiotics if you weren't sick. It is usually best to talk to your healthcare professional and make sure that they agree with consuming probiotics during your antibiotic regimen. And then the final myth is that probiotic supplements are equivalent to probiotics in food. For this one, it's a little trickier. So 47% of consumers believe that their probiotic supplements are just as good as probiotics in food, which is great because they are. You know, it's not always easy to know what you're buying, but consuming probiotics in food, I'm thinking like yogurt, like Activia, is a much better approach than a probiotic in a supplement because you are getting that additional nutrition. So you're getting calcium and vitamin D, specifically if you're having a dairy yogurt um, like Activia. And then uh, products like Activia, and we have another probiotic product um, called Dan Active. We do have a ton of research around them. We have close to 50 clinical studies between our two products going back more than 20 years. So it's really important for consumers to pay attention to who they're getting their probiotics from, you know, spend a little time doing a little research, and then they can really make a, an educated choice if they want it from a supplement or from a food. It seems that people are genuinely interested, but confused. So when it comes to all of these myths, do you have any idea where they're getting that misinformation from? And please don't say this podcast. <laughs> no, definitely not this podcast. All right, good. Well, there's many, many companies out there selling probiotic products and using different strains, maybe not using probiotic strains at all. They have different quality. They're making different claims. And a lot of this is unsubstantiated. So the FDA regulates claims on food and supplements, but they don't really have probiotic regulations. So it's really difficult for consumers to know if they're getting a validated probiotic just by reading something on the label. So a lot of these probiotic products have structure function claims, and the FDA only requires that the company has scientific support for those claims. So the FDA does not have to give approval ahead of making these claims. And so it's really easy, you know, if you look across the probiotic landscape, there's so many products. So it is really easy for companies to make these claims without necessarily being monitored. And as I was saying before, I think, you know, the best thing for consumers to do really is a little research. They can look online at some credible sources. You can check company websites. Looking on pack is really important. A lot of companies that have products, including Danone, includes the strain information on pack. And we know that if they're including the strain information, right, you can take that strain information, you can go online, you can look for those studies, um, you can look on the product websites, a lot of times they'll have the studies there too. And read, just see what the science was about. And a lot of times companies, including Danone on the Activia website, we have content 
that is very consumer friendly, explaining the benefit behind our products. Um, so it's not like we're asking consumers to go read a ton of research papers, right? But if you have a really reputable and well-studied probiotic strain, then you want folks to know about it. And that's the case for Danone. And then I think the other place that folks can find out about probiotic information is from their personal physicians. And, you know, we've been surveying and trying to educate physicians for a number of years. But unfortunately, some physicians still don't know as much about probiotics as you might think that they do. So I would urge consumers if they have questions about a probiotic, if they're looking for a specific benefit, then they should ask their physician what they know about specific probiotic products, um, if they have any research that they can share with them, then they can make a more educated decision based on that physician feedback, as well as any other research that they would do on their own. The educating physicians in this area is still really important to Danone. We're educating this year, we're going to be educating next year, and hopefully for many years to come, so that we'll be able to bring all those healthcare professionals along for the probiotic ride with us. And as far as addressing the myths, obviously you've just come out with the press release and the study on on the myths, but how do you address those for consumers and get the facts across? I guess there's probably not just one method. Yeah, I can take that. It's not one method and it's not only with consumers. It also goes through um, healthcare professionals, as Christy mentioned. The no North America, we, we market our products in a very clear way to the consumer. Uh, so we strike to be transparent as possible. And in case of probiotics, we want to make sure that we properly communicate the information on probiotics directly on the packaging. So whenever a consumer is buying a probiotic product at the shelf, they should be looking to certain things. For example, is the strain of the probiotic clearly specified on packaging? Are the claims clearly depicted on the packaging in that product or not? A lot of probiotic products on the shelf do not indicate the strain name of the probiotic. And it's the same for prebiotics. Uh, whenever we have a prebiotic in our product, we uh, make sure that we clarify on packaging which probiotic and at what quantities is provided. So aside from communicating via packaging and, of course, websites, we also have a long legacy of supporting education and um, research on probiotics, nutrition, and health. For a very long time, uh, we've provided educational grants on probiotics, on yogurt, on the microbiome, either independently to grad and postgrad students or in partnership with other uh, institutions like the American Gastroenterological Association. Also with this association, we for a very long time been sponsoring and supporting uh, one of the biggest conferences uh, around uh, the microbiota and probiotics, which is called the Get Microbiota for Health World Summit, which is happening early next year. We also provide fellowship grants. I believe that we are at our eighth year providing fellowship grants uh, and awarding so far 
$400,000 in the field of biotics and microbiome. We do uh, many workshops dedicated to registered dietitians as a place to exchange tips and some of these facts, some of these myths, so dietitians can make the best recommendations around probiotics for their clients and their patients. And uh, of course, we, I mean, we offer consumer probiotic products that are backed up by science and clinical studies, uh, which is a really critical point because a lot of these products that you see on the market, like the kombuchas, the, the sauerkraut, the pickles, you know, they sometimes even have the word probiotic written on their packaging. And it's impossible to find if there's any probiotic actually in there and if it's been studied or not. So this is really goes back to our commitment and the known's commitment to make sure what you put in the shelf around probiotics is backed up by science and clinical studies. Are you constantly working on new products in this area? Well, I mean, we are. We are constantly working on adding new products and uh, addressing some of the strands. I think that the most exciting aspect of working in health and nutrition in this environment is that the work is really never done, right? There's always new research coming out, including what's coming out now on postbiotics. There's always more to discover. And with discovery comes greater innovation and disruption. So at Danone, we have some exciting progress in the works and our current portfolio of products is growing from Activia to Horizon Organic. Uh, we have uh, an Horizon uh, growing years with uh, prebiotics uh, for a young child to help also benefit their uh, microbiome. And Danone is making its mark on the dairy and not only on the dairy but also on the plant-based world and continually making the change for the better is there anything else that you wanted to add maybe i would just let christy tell us a little bit more about uh, activity i know you know a little bit about it but uh, i think it would be worth it for this podcast to tell a little bit about our most relevant product around gut health and microbiome Sure. Activia is a dairy-based yogurt. We have an exclusive probiotic strain, Bifidobacterium animalis lactis, and we also have four additional cultures in that product. The Bifidus culture was selected because of its ability to survive passage through the digestive system and reach the large intestine in sufficient amounts. And specifically, this is like unique for a probiotic because not all probiotics are able to make the trip through our digestive systems, including those in supplements or in other fermented foods. We have 18 clinical studies behind Activia. And right now, our claim around Activia is helping in reduction in the frequency of minor digestive discomfort. And so when a consumer has Activia twice a day for two weeks, they may see a reduction in digestive discomfort symptoms like bloating and gas, some abdominal discomfort, and some rumblings. And then we have one additional product that's, you know, one of those sort of flagship products for Danone, and that's Stan Active. It also has a unique probiotic strain, and it has a, a separate benefit. So Activia's Benefit is really around supporting gut health and reduction the frequency of those minor digestive issues. 
Danactive has a helping support the immune system benefit with over 30 clinical studies uh, behind it. And it is also um, a dairy-based probiotic food. So these are, um, you know, our two major probiotic players and together have close to 50 clinical studies behind them. So really reputable brands you can trust and brands that provide really relevant benefits that consumers are looking for. Okay, so after that, I've learned sourdough toast and pickles washed down with kombucha isn't necessarily probiotic. Okay, so from there, we're going to find out more about Pathways to Dairy Net Zero, a new climate initiative. And when the press release came out, 40 organizations, including 11 of the 20 largest dairy companies in the world, had declared their support for the effort, although I believe it's now more than 40. Collectively, these companies represent approximately 30% of the total milk production worldwide. So to tell us more about Pathways to Dairy Net Zero is Donald Moore, Executive Director of Global Dairy Platform, which is one of the initiative's partners. All right, so I guess the first one is just the obligatory backgrounder, if you could outline what Pathways to Dairy Net Zero is all about. Sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today about Pathways to Dairy Net Zero. It's a pretty exciting program that we've got within the dairy sector. And I guess before I get into that, you know, the motivation for this particular initiative, Pathways to Dairy Net Zero, as a global dairy industry, and I should also mention that the Pathways to Dairy Net Zero is a collaborative effort of six different organizations, ourselves, Global Dairy Platform, the International Dairy Federation, SAI Platform, the Dairy Sustainability Framework, ILRI, the International Livestock Research Institute, and the IFCN Dairy Network. So those six organizations came together to form this initiative, and we work very closely with the Global Research Alliance on Agricultural Greenhouse Gases as our research partner. So that's the, the sort of the formation of it. But the motivation, you know, all of our organizations have spent years researching the nutritional value of dairy. So we know what dairy does for nutrition. We know what that nutrition does for health. We know what dairy does for poverty. We've written reports with FAO about dairy's impact on reducing poverty, dairy's impact on reducing hunger. We know what it does for women's empowerment. We know what it does for youth. We know that dairy is the world's largest agricultural commodity by value, third largest by volume. We know, we know, we know all the good we do. But on the other side, we also acknowledge and recognize that we, like all agricultural commodities, have an impact on the natural environment in which we operate. And this initiative, Pathways to Dairy Net Zero, is to bring together the research capability globally of the dairy sector to work out how do we tackle our impact on the environment. And we would encourage other commodity groups to look at doing a similar sort of thing for themselves. Involved in the program, there are six key principles. I wonder if you could give me an overview of those. Sure. The key principles, I mean, they're, to be honest, they're pretty obvious, I suspect. The first one is around mitigation. You know, So what are those continuous improvements that we can introduce into dairy systems around the world to reduce the emissions from dairy? So that's the first principle. The second one is about removal. So not just mitigating, but how do we remove GHG emissions from the dairy sector? So what is it that we can do to enhance practices that protect carbon sinks or indeed um, enhance carbon sinks both above ground and below ground? So carbon sequestration as well as agroforestry type systems. 
So that's our second principle about removals. The third one is about avoidance and adaptation. So primarily there, it's about the recycling and reuse of biomass. You're probably aware that a lot of the feed that goes into the dairy sector is actually a byproduct from other human feed systems. And so crop stubble, et cetera, et cetera. But also what can we do to improve processes around feed, manure management, fertilizer, energy management, et cetera. So that's this area of avoidance and adaptation. Then we've got, you know, insets and offsets, which is largely about balancing emissions within the value chain through initiatives such as renewable energy, whether that's biodigesters, solar, wind, et cetera, on farm. And then measurement and monitoring. And that really recognizes that what's that old adage? You can't manage what you don't measure. So we need to measure the progress we're making, monitor that on a continuous basis. We already have the dairy sustainability framework in place, which allows us to do that. So it's about making sure that we don't just track outcomes, but we track you know, measurement that will indicate the, the direction of travel we're going on. And then lastly, it's about support. And I don't mean support just for the initiative. I mean support for the organizations that are embarking upon this journey together. So how do we support them in their different pathways? So those are the six principles. But the concept behind this is about recognizing that dairy systems around the world are very, very varied. There are some 133 million dairy farms in the world, according to FAO. And the average dairy farm is only three cows. So, you know, those of us in the UK or in the US, we tend to think of dairy as being a relatively large scale operation. Well, the reality is that most of those dairy farms around the world are small scale. And we need to make sure that we define pathways that are applicable and practical and pragmatic for farmers to follow and businesses to follow in all sorts of different models and systems around the world. So one of the key things we're working on are system topologies to define those different dairying systems. And considering the fact that you have so many different organizations involved and all of these different principles that you're working on and all of the global dairy companies that you're working with, it seems like a huge undertaking. How is it being run in terms of the coordination of it? Yeah, this is a phenomenal undertaking. People have been saying, people have been saying, we've been saying, others have said to us, that this is the first of its kind. And, you know, so we're working very closely with some of the UN agencies as well. And they're quite interested in what we're doing because they see this as potentially a blueprint model for other agricultural commodity groups to follow. And I should have mentioned, we spend as much time talking to other livestock, other commodity groups as we do to our own dairy members Because we also recognize that this is something that hasn't really been done before at the scale we're talking about and and really making sure that we address the emerging dairy markets as much as the developed dairy world. And so the governance for this is really quite complex. So we've got all these external stakeholders who are watching what we're doing and hopefully will advise us along the way as well as learn from us. We've then got those core organizations that are really directing this. We have our knowledge partner. We have the guidance and advice we get from different UN groups and agencies, whether it's um, the FAO or EFAD, other groups like that. So it's um, quite a complex issue. And sitting at the core, we do have those six groups and they form our governance group for this initiative. And in terms of results, obviously, it's somewhat results oriented and they're going to come in at very different times. How will you utilize the data that you collect and share it with 
those that need to see it? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And we have, as I mentioned before, one of the partners to this is the Dairy Sustainability Framework. Now, that was launched back in 2014 during the IDF World Dairy Summit in Yokohama. And that framework tracks and reports on 11 sustainability dimensions across um, the dairy world. They've got some 30-odd percent of global milk production already reporting through the Dairy Sustainability Framework. So we already have a model in place for tracking and reporting, and we produce an annual report. And I should, full disclosure, I chair the Dairy Sustainability Framework as well. So I'm, I'm pretty well aware of what they do. And the Dairy Sustainability Framework has been working with FAO using the GLEAM model that FAO has, which measures life cycle analysis of greenhouse gases from agriculture. So we produce every five years, they collect a set of data globally, set of data that represents the full agricultural world. And we analyze that data to track and measure the progress we're making in dairy. And we produced a report back in 2019, which looked at the data from 2005, 2010, 2015 from the global dairy world. It found in that time period, production from dairy had increased 30%. So a fairly large increase in output from dairy. Absolute emissions had increased by 18%, but the emission intensity, the amount of greenhouse gas per kilogram of product produced, had reduced by 11%, which was good news. But the focus of this initiative now is how do we focus on that absolute emission as well as intensity and other things? And recognizing that some 80% of greenhouse gas emissions are coming from the emerging dairy markets. That's what the motivation for this initiative is. How do we raise the ambition globally for dairy? And that's part of what we're trying to do here. And what about timescale? What kind of timescales and goals are there involved with this? Sure. I mean, the obvious one is, you know, our strategy is that we would love to see dairy as a global entity um, achieving net zero by 2050. So that's the ultimate goal. But there are a lot more goals along the way. I mean, we, we announced this initiative back in July. We launched it last week, the day before the Food Systems Summit. We're going to hold a session in November this year as part of COP26, a session where we share commitments across the dairy world. But we have to recognize that not every dairy company, not every country's dairy sector is starting from the same place. In the UK, your dairy sector is very advanced. We couldn't possibly hold Bangladesh to the same standard as the UK in the same timeline. So that's where this concept of pathways comes into play. How do we define a pathway that is relevant to that particular farming system, farming model, culture, environment, et cetera, et cetera? And, and we'll have to have different targets for different parts of the world. It's just the way it will it will end up being. I mean, you know, otherwise you don't have something that's realistic. And that's what we're trying to do here. And you mentioned earlier about how it's not just about greenhouse gases there are lots of different factors involved is part of the equation the equations i guess is a part of that looking at things like producing identical dairy products through fermentation that kind of approach let me start by maybe take a step back and something i should have maybe mentioned earlier you know a lot of the climate discussion focuses on this concept of reducing carbon emissions. And so we calculate carbon, we calculate greenhouse gas emissions using carbon equivalents. 
agriculture is not predominantly a carbon emitter. You know, we have methane, nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide as the gases that are emitted from the dairy sector. And probably methane is our key gas that we should focus on in dairy. So one of the things we've been doing in parallel with launching our own initiative is talking to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. They have a program for agriculture called Carnivia. And we've been stressing to Carnivia that they need to think about what is the correct framing of climate ambition for agriculture using zero carbon as the target is not actually right when a lot of the gases from agriculture are not carbon gases. So I just wanted to make that point. Uh, In terms of our alternatives to dairy part of the solution, look, alternatives to dairy have been around for years. And to me, they are largely a matter of choice, consumer choice. Not everybody has the luxury of that choice, though. I think one of the things that we should stress is that two-thirds of the world's agricultural land is permanent pasture and savanna. And so the way that land participates in the global food system is through the grazing of livestock, in our case, dairy cattle. You can't turn around and plow that land up. You can't plow up the savannas of Africa and plant something different. So I think livestock is always going to be part of the equation. And for us, the challenge is not how do we replace it. It's how do we make it more sustainable? Because it is key. Um, I didn't mention before, but on those 133 million dairy farms, 600 million people are living. And if you add on to that, my family and the families of all the people who live upstream and downstream from the farm whose livelihood depends upon dairy, there's another 400 million people. So according to FAO, the dairy sector supports to a greater extent the livelihoods of a billion people around the world. So we're not just dealing with environmental outcomes. We're also dealing with livelihoods, economic growth, rural communities, you know, women's empowerment, youth employment. All of those make for a very, very complex Rubik's Cube. So it's not just a question of, is it pull this lever, reduce greenhouse gases? How do we do that without impacting nutritional security, et cetera, et cetera? As to the alternatives, um, you know, I think... Um, You know, there's a lot of work going on at the moment on fermentation using um, GM, genetically modified yeast as a substrate, etc. I don't know that really the research has been done yet into what the greenhouse gas footprint of the full value chain of that is. But I do suspect it doesn't support the same number of livelihoods, the same sort of vibrant rural communities, etc. And while chemically they may produce something that looks like an individual protein, like a whey protein or a casein protein. I don't know that the research has been done into what is the effect of feeding that protein. Might be chemically the same, but um, until all of that research is done, it's something that still remains as a question. Plus, what they're doing is they're developing elements of dairy or milk or whatever it might be. They're not developing the full package of milk. And there is something quite unique about the matrix effect of all of those, you know, whether it's the protein, the fat, the calcium, or all the micronutrients that come in a package from dairy. So I think we need to look at the nutritional profile. We need to look at the environmental impact. We need to look at the impact on social outcomes, livelihoods, economic growth, etc. It's a complex equation. I don't think it's just a substitutional question. But We support the development of those alternatives and we encourage them because if we're going to sustainably feed a world of 10, 10 billion people by 2050, we need to think about all the tools at our disposal. And that's just one of them. 
For sure, yeah. The Pathways includes 11 of the 20 biggest global dairy companies. Is that something that they've come to you or have you gone to them to get them to join and are more welcomed into that family? We launched it last week. We had 41, I think it was, companies as members of that. When we launched, we're now up to 60-something. We are, of course, um, promoting this to dairy companies. We're still waiting to hear on others in the top 20 list. Some of them we know really well, so obviously we We've reached out to them first and foremost, others that we have less direct contact with. You know, we're promoting the concept to them. But I think ultimately this is something that it's not just about big dairy companies. It's the headline, the grabber, you know, eight of the top 10, 11 of the top 20. But in reality, this has got to be about all of the dairy value chain. And one of the things I would stress was that when we launched it, not only did we launch with those big companies, but we launched with the National Dairy Development Board of India. We launched with small dairy farm, dairy processor entities from countries like Kenya, Nepal, Mexico, and elsewhere in the world. So, you know, this was about demonstrating that this initiative appealed to not just the big companies, but of course, they're the name grabbers, but also to the developing emergent dairy markets as well. And of course, it's not simply about just lending their names to a club. It's more about the fact that there's something tangible being achieved here. You know, and we recognize that we, as I said before, we, like all other agricultural commodities, need to reduce the impact that we have. And so this is about demonstrating dairy as a responsible member of the global food system. And those companies, in signing up to Pathways to Dairy Net Zero, they're committing to the principles and they're committing to programs in their own organizations to reduce their environmental impact, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as well. And it is only early days, but when do you expect to see some progress from the project? Well, I think as a dairy sector, we've got results already. As I mentioned, the results from the report that um, FAO produced in 2019, we're on the right trajectory you know, I mentioned that globally milk production had increased 30%, which meant that absolute emissions had gone up 18%. One of the things that FAO said in that report was, had the dairy sector not taken the actions it already had taken, then global emissions would have gone up by 38% because of the part of the world where a lot of the growth in milk was, was in the, those developing regions. So I think we're already on the path by the research that's going on at the moment. We think there is some quite tangible short-term results that can be achieved by improving practice in some of the developing world. We have a program as well called Dairy Nourishes Africa. And with one of our pilots there in Tanzania, we've already seen a 40% increase in yield from farms there in like a six or eight month period. And that 40% increase in yield means a reduction in greenhouse gas per kilogram of product produced and ultimately could mean a reduction in the herd size because in countries like Tanzania, the herds are very large, but the yields are very small. So that's the sort of progress that we think we can make in a relatively short time period. And a lot of it's not to do with highfalutin fancy technology. It's to do with basic practice and training for farmers. So a lot of that's to do with outreach and, you know, extension services, which we would like to see more funding for in different parts of the world. The other thing we're doing as part of this initiative is we're planning to develop a methodology that countries can use 
to tackle greenhouse gas emissions from the dairy sector, so to develop their strategy and plans, and that that methodology will link the advancements that they make in reducing emissions from their dairy herd back to their commitments under the Paris Climate Accord, what they call their nationally determined contributions. So linking that back to the work that's gone on um, through the climate discussions as well. So I guess the next steps are just keeping going. You know, the next steps for us are finish the research piece that's underway at the moment with GRA, build the pathways, which will be the practical guidelines, if you like, practical guides for different dairying systems around the world. We want to engage with more countries as well as companies and sectors because we think, particularly in uh, some of those emerging markets, making sure that the countries have a focus on this is really important. So there's lots of work to be done and we encourage everyone to join us and be part of the journey. That's great. Thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to go over? No, thank you, Jim. I just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today and share the work on Pathways to Dairy Net Zero. I'd encourage anyone to go to the website. It is simply called Pathways to Dairy Net Zero.org. And there you can see the declaration, you can sign up to a mailing list, or you can sign up to become a supporter of the initiative as well. And that does it for another week. It actually wasn't that much shorter than a regular podcast, but hopefully we will be back next week and I will have lots of stories to share with you about what happened in Germany. And hopefully they're all good and it went smoothly. So that means I now have to go through my list and check it all off to make sure I take everything I need to. Funny how when you're traveling a lot it becomes automatic and you pretty much just leave the bag with all the things you'll need in it. Now I've made a list with things like all the cables and recording equipment, proof of vaccination, which apparently doesn't mean you can roll up your sleeve and say, look, there's the mark. Maybe when I get back, the broken water pipe in the road will have been fixed, although the council says it's not urgent. So maybe when I do get back, we'll have a riverfront property. Or, alternatively, I'll be living on an island and we'll need to build a bridge to get home. Anyway, on that note, I'll go start packing, although of course by the time you're hearing this, I'll be on a plane headed back to Scotland via Ireland. So I hope wherever in the world you may be that you have a great week ahead, stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>